Well, good morning. If we don't know each other, my name is Nate, and I'd love to meet you. I'll be in the lobby after the service. But uh, before we jump in, I want to let you know what's coming up. So uh, for the uh, past six weeks, we've been in this series about grace, and we conclude that today. Um, But next week, we start a new series uh, that'll be four weeks on the book of Jude. Um, So we'll just look at that little letter, um, and then it'll be Christmas time, uh, which is hard to believe. And uh, then we'll do a four-part Christmas series starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And so that's what's coming up. But today, um, we're closing this uh, series on grace by looking at one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Maybe you've uh, heard about this story and didn't even know it was in the Bible. Um, But it's a famous story, and it captures, I think, the heart of grace. And this story has something to say to us, whether we've heard it a thousand times and whether we're church people or whether this um, is one of our first times hearing it and we would not consider ourselves church people. And so let's jump in and look at it. Luke chapter 15 is where we'll be today. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, um, Luke 15, uh, there's a, um, a Bible in the seat there that's provided if you would like to follow along there. Um, it's on page 928 in that Bible. Uh, the big numbers are called chapters and the small numbers are called verses. So Luke chapter 15 is where we'll be. As we just heard read, this section of scripture is set up by this interesting exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. It tells us in chapter 15, verse 1, that all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And that's Jesus. So tax collectors, people who were despised by Jewish, the Jewish community, and sinners, just this broad term for people who live foolish lifestyles. Sinners is a term that refers to notorious kinds of sins, sins that are gross, that society looks at and is like, ugh. I mean, sure, we're all sinners, but ugh. Those kinds of people wanted to be with Jesus. Now think about that for just a minute. These people really have nothing in common with Jesus. Jesus is sinless, And yet there's something about him that's attractive and inviting to them. These are people who had turned their back on religion. They had turned their back on the world's system of how you approach God, but they want to be with Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And the Pharisees are watching that happen. And they can't believe it. The Pharisees were people who were actually really similar to Jesus. They had a lot of things in common with Jesus. They're people who took the Bible seriously. They're people who took the Jewish community and the Jewish heritage and following the order that you're supposed to follow according to the scriptures. They're people who took that, that, that very seriously. They believed that God's word had authority all over all of life and they wanted to bring all of their life under submission to his authority. And they wanted others to do the same. Jesus would affirm 
all of that. But what the Pharisees can't figure out is why is someone who affirms God's word, why is someone who's conservative in his view of scripture, why is someone who believes like us about God's word spending time with them, outsiders, sinners, ugh. And so they start to complain. Verse two, the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in this culture, to eat with someone was a a huge sign of association. To welcome someone to a table with you was to say, you're with us. I'm willing to be identified with you. Why in the world would Jesus, who claims to be from God, why in the world would Jesus, who is supposed to be a follower of God, be with such ungodly people? They're complaining about that. And so here's what Jesus does. He tells them three parables. Now, a parable is just a simple story that has a main point. It's, a, it's like a fable. And so Jesus told them this parable. And here's the first parable that he told them. He said, he said, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? He says, imagine that you're a shepherd and you've got a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. Which one of you is going to say, well, but we still got 99. Just cut our losses. No, you're going to go look for the one. You're going to find it. You're going to throw it over your shoulders and bring it home. And when you get home, you're going to throw a big party and rejoice over the one sheep that was lost being found. And he's speaking to a culture where basically everybody's a farmer. It's a very uh, agrarian society. And so is that the right word? Agriculture? Agrarian, that sounds kind of like a word for, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it's, it's a society full of agriculture is my point. And so everybody uh, knows about sheep and shepherds and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And Jesus says, and I tell you, this is verse seven, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need Repentance. The point is God values repentance. God celebrates when sinners repent. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. Then he tells a second story. He says, what woman do you know who's got 10 silver coins and she loses one is just like, well, we still got nine. No, she turns on all the lights. She sweeps the whole house. She looks for the one coin. And when she finds it, she goes and tells all of her friends, hey, I lost this, but I found it. Come over, let's celebrate. Jesus says, verse 10, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. God celebrates when sinners repent, Jesus says. Why am I hanging out with These people, those people, that's why. 
But then Jesus, who is exceedingly brilliant, tells another story. And this is the famous of the three. Verse 11, he also said, a man had, how many sons? Two. This is often called the parable of the prodigal son, but it's a story actually about two sons. He said, a man had two sons. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. This man has two sons and the younger one says he wants his inheritance early. Now this would have been a very dishonoring request. To ask for the inheritance before dad has died is like saying, I would rather you be dead than be living. You're worth more to me dead than alive, father. It's a very dishonorable request. Essentially what the younger brother here is saying is, I want your things more than I want you, dad. I want your things more than I want you. I care more about your stuff, your money. I care more about what you can give me than I care about you. So go ahead and give me my inheritance. This is very dishonoring and it would have required the father to likely have to sell off some property to be able to get the cash to actually give his son. But the father does it. He distributed the assets to them. That is, he divides up his inheritance between the two sons. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. It doesn't take him long, not many days later. He just had to get a few details worked out. He takes dad's money and he goes to a distant country, which to a Jewish person is also dishonoring. It's disrespectful. You're saying, dad, I know what you brought me up to believe. I know the, the heritage that I'm supposed to care about, but I don't. I'm going to the distant country the country that you're worried about. I'm moving to the city. I know you raised me in the suburbs and I know you brought me up with these important values, but I'm going to the city. And he goes. He goes to live and play with the Gentiles. And when he gets there, he squandered his estate in foolish living. And Jesus invites you to use your imagination here. Foolish living, extravagance, luxury, parties, drugs, sex, prostitutes, gambling. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. 
He spends, or we could say he wastes all of it. And then there's a famine and he's in need. Verse 15, so then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as a Jewish person, now not only is he working for a Gentile, but he's working with a Gentile's pigs. And in Leviticus chapter 11, pigs are called unclean. And so this is one more step of this younger son away from his father. He continues to be more and more alienated from his father. He continues to turn his back on his dad's God, his dad's traditions, his dad's heritage, his dad's morals and ideals. But while he's there, he hits rock bottom. Verse 16. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now that is desperation. My grandfather was a farmer and I went to the Washington State Fair a few weeks ago. And I, my daughter was really fascinated by the pigs. And so we stood there for a long time. And let me tell you, it smelled absolutely horrible in that little pig's area. And there was some stuff to eat on the ground, actually. Can you imagine wanting to eat that? Can you imagine being like to the point in your life where things have gotten so bad that you think the pigs have it better than me? And then it's like he's snapped out of it. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, or literally when he came to himself, when something happens, he's awakened to an idea. Wait a minute. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He realizes, wait, life is actually way better at dad's house. Why am I here doing this? Why am I living here, working for this guy, finding myself being jealous of these pigs when I could be back home with dad? Not even the people who work for my dad are this desperate. Their life is so much better than this. And so he makes a plan. Verse 18, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. I'll go back and I'll, I'll just own up to it. I'll just own up to, dad, I haven't just sinned against you. 
but I've actually sinned against heaven. I'm not just upset now at the consequences of where I found myself, but I'm coming to realize that actually God, the way of heaven is actually best for me. See, I thought that I would find real life through self-discovery. I thought that I would find real life by going to the city, by experimentation, by exploring what's out there, by having the means to get all of my ends. I thought that that's how I would find satisfaction in life. But in reality, the way of heaven all along, the way of God all along is what I needed. So dad, I've sinned against heaven, not just against you, but I've also sinned against you, obviously. And I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. So can I work for you? Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion, with mercy. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And now the son who's been practicing this speech launches into it. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father told his servants, quick, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And that is Jesus's point. The guy who lost a sheep celebrates when one comes back. The lady who loses a coin celebrates when she finds the lost coin and a father who has lost his son, not because of his own doing, but because of the son's stupidity and foolishness and arrogance and rebellion. When that son comes to his senses and comes home, we celebrate. We put a robe around you. We clothe you with dignity. We put a ring on your finger so that you're, you're back. You have power in, in the family again. You can actually sign contracts for the family again. We put sandals on your feet because there's privilege here in the family. And we slaughter the fattened calf. We do something we don't even do for the greatest holiday. Because it's like you were dead, but you're alive again. We celebrate when the lost are found. And you have to remember here that this is not just this, you know, little story here. Well, let's zoom out and remember that Jesus is telling this story to some Pharisees who are wondering why he's spending time with tax collectors and sinners and even eating with them. Why is he doing that? Because we celebrate when the lost 
are found. But this is not where the story ends. There's someone who hears the music and dancing and does not celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. There's the party of all parties going on inside of dad's house. And he's wondering why. Verse 26. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Hey, why is there a party? What's going on? Why the music and dancing? Verse 27. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So what does his father do? So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied replied to his father, verse 29, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Do you remember what the younger brother's problem was? Do you remember what was so dishonoring about him? It's that he wanted the father's stuff more than he wanted the father. He cared more about the father's things than he cared about the father. He cared more about what the father could give him than he cared about the father. And what Jesus is showing us here is that the younger brother and the older brother have the same basic problem. Jesus is showing us here that there are more than one way. There's more than one way to be lost. There are two ways to be lost. You can be lost like a younger brother, or you can be lost like an older brother, but both of them have the same basic problem, and that is that they don't actually love the father. They love what the father can give them. Do you see what the older brother says he's angry about? Why is he angry? Because the father has slaughtered the fattened calf and he didn't even get a goat. And he's been there all along. It's the stuff. You had to have this big of a party. You couldn't just have, I don't know, Soda and pizza, we had to kill the, the fattened calf for him. There are two ways to be lost. You can be rebellious like the younger brother or you can be religious like the older son, but both can be distant from the father. 
And the point is not that, look, what the younger brother did is actually good. I mean, you should go and waste all of the money on foolish living. That's actually what's good. Is that the point of the story? No, look at the story. It's foolish. It's stupid. It doesn't work out. This is not condoning the younger brother's behavior. It's not condoning his sin. It's not affirming his sin. But it is causing older brothers to examine ourselves. There are two ways to be lost. The problem with being an older brother is you don't know you're lost. Anybody can look at the younger brother and know he's lost. Man. (laughs) Pastor Tim Keller has a book about this that has just been super life-changing for me. It's called The Prodigal God. It's available in our bookstall, but something that he says that is funny, but brilliant, insightful. He says, you know when the younger brother is lost because he's in rehab. But when you look around the church, it's hard to know when you're lost because you're here. The younger brother's in rehab, but the older brother's here. The older brother's preaching the sermon. The older brother's leading the Bible studies. The older brother's volunteering for car cleanup and kids fest. The older brother's here. There are two ways to be lost, but when you're the older brother, you don't know that you're lost. And yet both of them are distant from the father. Both of them are alienated from the father. If you would have told the older brother, you're separated from your dad, he would have said, what are, you, what are you talking about? I've been here all along. I've been here all these years. I've never even disobeyed my dad. I've done everything my dad has ever said to do, to a T. You can even go, look, I don't have anything that I'm guilty of. I've, I've done nothing wrong. What do you mean I'm, I'm distant from the father? I've been doing everything he wants. And yet he doesn't actually love the father. The father is having the greatest day of his life because his dead son is alive. His lost son has been found. He's throwing the greatest party of his life. And the older brother doesn't want to go in to be with his dad and experience the joy that his dad is experiencing. Instead, he's outside arguing with his dad. And so Tim Keller offers three signs to check whether or not you're an older brother. The first is there's an undercurrent of anger in your life. There's an undercurrent of anger. You you look at the things that you have compared to what other people have and you're just mad about it. God, I've been doing what I'm supposed to do and I don't have anything to show for it. 
God, I actually went to seminary and my church hasn't grown, but this guy hasn't even done any of that. And look, that's how that plays out for pastors. How does it play out for you? We did all of the right stuff with our kids. We taught them the Bible. We prayed with them. We had family meals. We put away our phones. God. But that family, they even let their kids watch R-rated movies when they were 12. Why does their family seem to be working out better than our family? God, we served for years. We gave for years. We even gave to multiple building campaigns. We've been here for so long. We've seen every day, you know, every few years they come along. Yeah, give money and worship, blah, blah, blah. And we've given. And, and God, why are we the ones who have this going on in our life? One sign that you might be an older brother is there's an undercurrent of anger in your life. A second sign that you might be an older brother is what he calls duty without beauty. Duty without beauty. See, notice the, the irony of this story is that the younger brother is coming home and he's prepared to be a servant and he gets met with, but you're a son. Put the robe on, man. And yet the older brother who's supposedly been the faithful son all along actually has been living as a slave the entire time in dad's house. He says, verse 29, look, I've been slaving many years for you. That's the heart of an older brother. It's duty, but there's no beauty. Beauty is when you find something beautiful. To find something beautiful means it's an end in itself. I'm wanting to do this thing for dad because I love dad. Not because dad said to do it. He wouldn't have even had to ask me. I just wanted, I want to be with dad. I want to please dad. I love my dad. But here he's doing the thing without any beauty in it. It's possible to know all of the right doctrines and not delight in them. Real theology is not meant for classrooms or Bible studies. It's meant for worship. Real theology always sings. It adores God. Can you believe who God is? Can you believe what God has done? Real theology moves to worship. It's doxological in nature. Older brothers can study God and can even write books about God and can lead discussion groups about God, but don't love him. The third sign is that you might be an older brother is a sense of superiority. Look at how he talks about his brother. But when this son of yours came, 
who had devoured your assets with prostitutes. You slaughtered the fattened calf for him. See, if you ground your self-image, your self-worth, if you ground your significance on anything connected to you, it, it just has a way of, of cutting you until you begin to look down on people who don't have that thing. If being a hard worker is the thing that you most cherish, if it's what makes you, you, then of course you'll look down on people who are lazy. If being successful is the thing that anchors you, that grounds you, that makes you feel like I matter, I have worth, then of course you'll look at people who fail and have a superiority complex. If the thing that makes you most you is how fit you are, how attractive you are, then it's only a matter of time before you just, you start to feel superior to people who are not fit. If knowing all of the right doctrines, if being able to explain all of the right theological boxes is the thing that, that ultimately grounds you, if it's the thing that ultimately you find your significance in, of course you'll look down at other churches and, de- and denominations and feel like you're the only one who really knows God. The older brother is just looking to justify himself. And with that comes a sense of superiority. Jesus is showing us that there are two ways to be lost. You can be lost as a younger brother who's rebellious and moves to the city and experiences everything there is to experience and lives it up. Or you can be the older brother who stays and is very religious and does all of the right things and has kept all of the rules, but for all the wrong reasons. There are two ways to be lost, but there's one way to be found. And that is to repent. Jesus will say later in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the one who can bring lost sons, the younger brother kinds and the older brother kinds home. This is why Jesus came. So for rebellious sinners, are there any rebellious sinners in the room today? Any younger brothers who have wandered? Would you come to your senses? 
Would you repent? That is, would you change your mind? Would you repent for the reasons that you ran? You thought you knew better than God. You thought that there was life outside of God. But maybe you've already come to see that your life is not better now. And maybe there's pride in you that doesn't want to admit that, especially to your parents or to whoever else. But would you come to your senses? Would you come home? Do you know what you'll find? Is you'll find a father who will see you with compassion. And do you know why? See, as you zoom out of the story and Jesus is telling this, when he begins to describe this younger son who comes home and he begins to describe how the father puts a robe around him and puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and kills the fattened calf, do you know what has to be going on in Jesus' mind? It is going to be possible. Jesus has got to be thinking. It is going to be possible for these tax collectors and sinners, these younger brothers. It's going to be possible for them to come home and get the robe put on them because I am going to be stripped naked and die. They will be clothed through my nakedness. They will be honored through my humiliation. And so Jesus, the one who's created this story, who's made up this story to help you know what the heart of God is like, is pleading with you. Come home, repent. Jesus has died so that you might live. So if you're the younger brother, if you're the rebellious sinner, come home. And if you're the religious sinner who's here today, and let me just say that the wrong response to this is to walk around church from now on looking and wondering, that person seems to have a little bit of an undercurrent of anger. We have a real older brother on our hands here. We really need to work on him. He is the older brother. That is the wrong response to this text. It's possible just like all sin to wander down paths and come back and be prone to wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Some of us wander like younger brothers. Some of us wander like older brothers. So if you're an older brother type, if you like to do the right thing, have you considered, are there any ways that you need to repent, not for sins that you've committed as such, but is there any room for repentance in your life 
for reasons that you stayed? Is there any motivation behind obedience that you might need to repent of? Maybe you felt obligated. Maybe you felt entitled. God, if I do this, then you must do this. But Jesus is also inviting older brothers to repent and come join the party of repentance. Jesus ends this parable this way because he's he's wanting the Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining to join the party. But in order to do so, they're going to have to repent too. Do you need to do that? Can I tell you what a community who gets this will look like? A community who gets God's grace like this, who cherishes God's grace like this, will ooze of grace. We will have eagerness to worship because God has saved us. He has rescued us from a domain of darkness and brought us back home into the kingdom of the son he loves. He made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we praise him because of his glorious grace. A community who cherishes God's grace will ooze of grace through worship, will ooze of grace through confession and repentance. That is, we'll be quick to tell on ourselves. We'll be quick to own up to our wrongdoings. We'll be quick to repair with one another. We'll, we'll be slow to self-justify. A community who oozes of grace will, will ooze of good works will treat people with kindness, will be good citizens and good workers in the community, will be good neighbors. A community who oozes of grace will have a missionary heart, will have a love for people who are different than us, will have hope for people who are different than us, will have constant prayer for sinners to repent. And this will not come from an older brother posture of superiority because the thing that grounds us, the thing that motivates us is not our goodness. It's Christ's goodness. God has done something for us that we couldn't do. God has been the one to bring us home through his son, Jesus. And so this kind of understanding of grace leaves no room for boasting. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not from ourselves. It's God's gift so that no one can boast. This kind of grace eliminates arrogance. There should be no such thing as an arrogant, self-righteous Christian. This kind of community that oozes of grace will be a community of forgiveness. We'll cancel debts. 
will be grieved by people's sins. We won't harbor bitterness and resentment towards them. It will be a community that oozes of generosity. We give joyfully to others' needs and to the work of advancing the message of God's grace in the world. My hope for us as we wrap up this series is that we would be that kind of community, a community of grace. Let me pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this. Father, we do praise you because you have blessed us with every blessing in Christ. God, we want to confess to you this morning that we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. We are prone to want what you can give us more than we want you. So God, we confess that. Some of us do that like younger brothers. Some of us do that like older brothers. But God, we both need to repent. And God, we praise you that we can. That we can come back to you and receive grace and compassion because your heart towards us is one of love that you've demonstrated by sending your son, our true older brother, Jesus. So God, help us to marvel at his grace. And God, would that humble us and cause us to ooze of grace ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.